Welcome to What's the Revolution, the show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can understand and embrace a healthy masculinity. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corcoran. High school was one of the best times of my life. I had great friends, Kyrie, Quince, Kenzie, Derek. Derek was high yellow with the kid and play high top fade. He was affable, loved by everyone. He loved basketball, and we could be found on somebody's court every Friday after school. D, as we affectionately called him, would stay at the house from time to time with my boy Quince, particularly when our high school escapades had us stumbling into the house in the early morning hours or when we decided to make a late-night run to the border for Taco Bell. My mother would always complain that D would eat all the bacon when he stayed. I would just laugh. I was just happy as an only child to have the friends at the house. Our senior year came and went. Derek went off to Virginia State to pursue his degree. We continued to play basketball in the summers, but I remember distinctly the summer after I graduated from James Madison. I received a call. It was Quince. His voice quivered, and he couldn't utter the words coherently. He said, Chuck. Derek shot himself. He's dead. Derek had taken dr drastic measures to cope with the breakup of the breakup he had with a young woman. Our friend, who he loved dearly, was now gone. As we continue this conversation on mental health and well-being today, we're going to talk about men and depression. It is something that is debilitating and has a tremendous or takes a tremendous toll on men across the country and across the world. The interesting thing about depression is that it is linked and correlated to suicide something that we don't often talk about in our communities, particularly in the black community, males and suicide. The interesting thing about that is that males 15 to 24 in the African-American community, it is the third leading cause of death. So we're going to spend a little time, we're going to take a little time talking about men, depression, and suicide today. So I hope that you will spend some time with me today. I have some wonderful guests that I'll be talking to today. Squeaky Moore, who's the director of Faces of Darkness, will be on with me in a few moments. And we will have my great friend, Dr. Denise Shervington, one of the premier psychiatrists here in New Orleans. In New Orleans. So I appreciate everyone listening in today. Squeaky. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How you doing? I'm awesome. Thanks Wonderful. For having me on. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And just so my listeners know, as I mentioned previously before she came on, this is Squeaky Moore, director of Faces of Darkness. I'm going to get into that in a few moments, what Faces of Darkness is and why you decided to make this wonderful documentary. But Squeaky, the first question that I always ask my guests is, what's your revolution? Oh, that's a deep one. So uh, my revolution serves my purpose in life, I believe, which is to inspire, motivate, and educate people. Um, and I usually do that through my um, artistic endeavors. So, for instance, in Face of Darkness, my revolution is to change the dialogue amongst, about mental illness. Um, and, and I do that through inspiring people, through motivating them to make changes uh, to their day-to-day uh, -day process and, you know, educating them on the facts about it. Wonderful. Thank you, Squeak. I appreciate that. And it, it is a wonderful documentary. But we'll, as I said, we'll get into that in one moment. I always want my listeners to have an understanding of who's on the show with me. So tell them briefly a little bit about who you are. Who is Squeaky Moore? Well, Squeaky Moore is a, um, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, um, 
and I'm a uh, content creator and a new author. I have a book coming out. Um, but I'm a content creator uh, mostly, and um, I, you know, I'm creating content for both film and television, and um, so yeah, in general, that's that's just kind of who I am. I'm a fun-loving, fun-spirited person too. So. Wonderful, wonderful. You talk about being a content creator. Unpack that a little bit more. What does that mean? What, what kind of content other than Faces of Darkness? Tell us a little bit about your book that you that you've got coming out. Okay, so I am. I I write. I am. I'm currently writing dramas and um, uh, reality docu series for you know. Uh, I have a docu series show that I'm currently pitching for television based on the mental health piece. Um, and I'm also currently working on a web series that it, it doesn't have anything to do with mental health, but it's just a web series. Um, I'm not even at liberty to really talk about it, but we gotcha. do go into a, a shooting process uh, May 8th through the 18th. Um, and so that's typically the type of content that I uh, write about. But my book is really about, it's called 100 Pitches, Mistakes I've Made So You Don't Have To. And it came from my frustration of learning about the business of pitching. And, and so my aim was to educate people around how to pitch your product how to pitch your project and your product to so that you can button up and compete against, um, you know, industry, those industry, Hollywood, you know, big wigs, so that, you know, more voices, uh, more diverse voices, especially uh, minorities and women, can be heard. Right. That's a revolution in itself right there. I think that mm -hmm. information is power, and particularly as, you know, young and up-and-coming uh, People are trying to figure out how to make their way. That's the interesting piece is that What's Your Revolution began out of a conversation, well, not even a conversation, but uh, a speech, a graduation speech from Tom Friedman as he talked about how in 2011 it was the best time for people to think about how they could shift their lives to then go out and shift the world because we were going through that we were going through a recession. We were still in, in the midst yeah. of the recession. And he said it was the worst time to actually go out and try to find a job. So it, it sounds like your book is a wonderful opportunity for people to read and really figure out from the mistakes how they can revolutionize the opportunities that they, they may uh, obtain, but then make the best use of that opportunity. Absolutely. And you know what, to be honest, the, the book is book. It's an amazing book. I, I'm, I'm really proud of this book. Not only do I talk about my journey, but I went further to get input from executives at networks and um, people, you know, content creators that actually bridge the gap from being independent to getting on the screen. And so um, I just didn't want my story. But really what the book was about was so much deeper. It was about my faith. It was about rising above rejection. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's not about that, but these are a lot of the things that I went through and that I do kind of talk about, like how to reframe your thinking around rejection and and all of these different things that we encounter as content creators. So um, it was a huge, you know, I, I had a period of growth over the last year and a half. And so writing about it is key. And telling that story has been really, is going to be really key for me right. um, going forward. It sounds like uh, it also was a, a cathartic experience for you as well. Oh, my God, yeah. The, the, interesting, the interesting thing is that, the interesting thing is that you talk about rejection uh, okay. and that piece, and that rejection can be very debilitating for some people, um, okay. which leads me to begin to ask about faces of darkness. And okay. because we see rejection for some, and that perception of rejection may lead people down that dark road uh, into depression. Okay. Why make faces of darkness, and why is it important for people to see at this point in time? Well, my friend, I have a friend named Casey Nelson. Um, um, he came to me, and he, uh, right on the heels of Lee Thompson Young uh, dying by suicide, uh, who was a friend of his, and he said, you know, there's so many people, so many black males um, just taking their lives lately. Have you listened to this? Have you paid attention to it? And I'm like, um, you know, you know, I, I was in agreement as I, as I sat through and thought about it. I was like, oh, yeah. 
wow, yeah, he was like, I think we should do something about it. And I was like, okay, well, let's meet up. And as we met, we thought maybe a documentary was the best thing to do about um, suicide and depression. And, and then it kind of went from trauma, suicide, anxiety, depression. And the thing was, is that both KT and I both had struggled with depression. And we both had different paths and journeys that we took to heal um, ourselves. And so we felt like there was a lot to add, a lot to give to the topic as well. We weren't going in blind. We were going in, uh, you know, very open as to the day-to-day process of someone who was struggling with um, those forms of mental, uh, you know, illness. So we just, that was our way. We just, we went on that journey from that point on to tell those stories or to kind of enlighten. And I guess our, our mission was, you know, sort of like the mission with getting tested when, when you know, HIV and AIDS became, you know, I remember BET doing this HIV and AIDS um, campaign, get tested, get tested. And before then, it really wasn't a conversation that you had. You were really kind of afraid to tell your guy, like, you got to get tested. Like, I want you to get tested. And then after the campaign, it became a no-brainer. Get tested, get tested. You got to, no, you got to get tested, you know. And so that's kind of how we look at um, uh, mental health. And it's been our mission to then, you know, say, how can we tell the story? How can we get it out there to the masses of people so that, it's another five to ten years. It's a no-brainer. It's no longer this mm, stigma. The, the word that I hate, I hate the word stigma because I'm like, if it's such a stigma and everyone says it's a stigma, then is it really a stigma anymore? Like, you know, like I want to rid the stigma. I just want it to become a dialogue around the world. And so that became our mission. All right. All right. Beautiful. Thank you. So you talk about this journey. I'm going to ask a, a couple of questions. What was the journey like for you, hearing these stories, knowing that you had been on, in their, you know, in their perspective, and uh, had been a a person who experienced depression? What was it like for you and your partner KT to then dialogue and chronicle these stories of depression and anxiety and and possible suicide? Mm-hmm. Well, it is always interesting um, to dissect or to hear the stories as we're recording, you know, because we're in the process of shooting the, uh, uh, the feature, the documentary. We shot a short promo, and now we're in the process of okay. shooting the, the feature. Not only are we always wowed by um, the onset of depression and these stories, that, you know, the lives that some of these men have led or people in general, because now at this point it's like, it's not just about black men. It's about everyone that's dealing with it. Let's, I mean, not everyone, but many people face it. Right, exactly. And, um, but it's really about the onset, how it started, you know, what was the cause of some of these issues. And even the cries for help mm. that, that went unnoticed and or the things that were traumatic that were never faced or dealt with because this is, the norm for many people. And so, uh, or whatever they're dealing with is, is the norm in their neighborhood, I should say. Right. Right. Um, and so we're not even looking at, oh, my, you know, you know, the person that just got shot and killed on the corner. We're not looking at that as the reason that this person is, that that was a, something that affected them long term, that they didn't even realize it, right? We're not looking at, divorces that, that you know you know divorces of our parents that that end up in the long run affecting us because we don't know why we're you know we're, we're bothered by certain things and we just don't know the long-term effects of of certain traumas and certain situations that that that, that and that what they and how they affect us and so you know it's these stories that are like it's almost kind of heartbreaking and sometimes it's like I remember talking to Terry uh, M. Williams, and she was like, you know, you can't take on the world because the more you hear it, honestly, sometimes it affects, it will affect you, and you don't, you won't understand why your mood is so down or, you know, you're so solemn some days, and it's because sometimes it gets like that, you know, in this journey. 
right. help others. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and they're tough. And you've mentioned a couple things. Um, for you as for you as this producer and then the, the director, you've mentioned a couple themes, a, a couple mm-hmm. triggers. What were some of the things, and I know you don't want to spoil it, but, but give the teaser for some people who, who are going to watch this down the road. What are some of the themes, some of the trigger themes that came out that really took men down that road or took people down that road to, you know, into that hole of depression or even that consideration of suicide? What were some of the, the key mm-hmm. triggers that came that you experienced that were in their stories? Mm-hmm. Uh, sexuality mm-hmm. is a huge one. It's a huge storyline. Um, dealing with sexuality, using sexuality, um, and, 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 and things like molestation. Because you ask, well, how do you start using your sexuality to live life or to get through life or to do whatever? Or why, did you, why are you selling yourself? Or uh, as a man, why are you selling yourself? And then to dig deeper, it's due to sexuality, it's due to molestation. And then it's the first time I felt like if I sold my sex, that I I, I could see, I could use that as feeling love because I didn't get love from my father. Um, A huge one is relationship. Ending relationships is huge. That's you know, um, for people, it's it's a it's it's a immediate sense of depression when you can't control making someone love you enough to stay with you, um, and then the effects of well, then my, I can't go on, I can't live another day right. without this person. Um, you know, that's a huge. Um, topic people feeling like all is lost if they're not in that relationship. So, right, right. Um, Squeaky, hold on. It, yeah. go, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to make sure that people know that we, they're listening to WBOK 12:30 a.m. This mm-hmm. is the What's Your Revolution show. We're talking to wonderful. Uh, director and producer Squeaky Moore uh, of the documentary Faces of Darkness, and she's just dropped some 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 pearls, some, some wisdom with us about some of the triggers uh, that men are facing that will lead them down depression, you know, and then the consideration of suicide, and, and for some, sadly, to to take their lives. Squeaky, interesting, you said the two two things that you just mentioned before is is their sexuality, men's sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is really interesting because we don't talk about that, and, and mm-hmm. I'm going to make this assumption and tell me if I'm wrong. It's the perception of alternative sexuality, so gay, yeah. and so how mm-hmm. does that play out in various communities and how men are actually interacting based on their perception of how society sees them? Is that correct? Absolutely, um, and it, it may even stem before you even get to society. It's like within your home. It's like, um, you know, let's just say you're you're young and you're a kid and you you are um, you know that as a male you know that you you like boys, right? And and even though you haven't said it, maybe your dad is. Some of the situations where, okay, so there, there's this dad that that notices that their son isn't, um, you know, you know, may have a tendency or the, the the tendency to be to be gay, but the conversation isn't. Nothing's being conversed. No one's conversing about it. It's just that I don't like it. I don't like what I'm seeing. So then there's this hate that's back and forth between the two, and. The kid is not understanding. Like, why do you hate me? Why do you treat me differently than you treat my brother or my sisters or whatever? And so it's things like that that start from a very young age um, and then not even really realizing it until they're in some sort of um, um, therapy situation. And even then, listening to some of the, um, I'm, and I'm speaking about the people that we've actually filmed, and then still not getting it really, still not understanding that, oh, my dad didn't like me because he saw he saw this in me, not really connecting the dots. Right, right. And, I, you know, for me on the outside looking in, I'm like, well, it's clear. He has these issues. But for the person, it's like, really, you think? Yeah. Um, so those are some of the things. And then how, you know, it's like how does society take it, especially like um, the transgender 
uh, situation. Like, you know, in my hometown, no one will be able to accept something like this. And right. I want to play it out. I want to, I want to play this out. I want to see what this feels like, but, um, I can't, you know? And so a lot of these, this is some of the things that, you know, we're certainly writing about in the, for, for television, um, like how to get society to wrap their minds around that, you know, we're all one person. Right. You and know? that struggle, that's, that struggle is tough. And as you said, in, particularly in, in certain communities, coming out and being successful and feeling prideful and feeling okay, uh, especially when in your home when you have this hegemonic masculinity where the patriarch does not see you or recognize you know, or, or acknowledge that this is your space and this is how you're developing. It's a very interesting piece, and you have to internalize that. And then to go out in this very dominant you know, hyper-masculine society in certain spaces mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. just try to be yourself. That mask can be debilitating and consequential. So it's a, it, it's a wonderful piece that you're actually highlighting. The second thing that you said was, and I find it very, very interesting, is that the end of a relationship, and we think, okay. I think, we think the end of a relationship is typically done by the man. That, that we have this perception that men break up with women and that we can just go on about our lives. But when that happens on the reverse, when a woman, when a woman breaks up with us, mm -hmm. many times we don't know how to deal with that because we have been the ones to leave. Mm -hmm. And then when, once we have decided to give our heart, soul, and mind to a woman or a partner, or it could be a, a male partner, once we've done that and then we've got our, our heart broken, we, some of us may not know how to cope with that well. And that's, I find that interesting because I know that, and to be very honest with you, Squeak, I spent two years in therapy after a breakup. Okay. Two years. In, I mean, yeah. the saddest point in my life was those two years in therapy after a breakup with a woman that I thought was the be-all to end-all. And to come to find mm -hmm. out she wasn't, but I was all in, Squeaky. And mm -hmm. once I found out the backstory and all the drama and all the BS that she brought to the table, when she left, I didn't know how mm -hmm. to cope. I, I couldn't cope. I could mm -hmm. not cope. And fortunately for me, I had the means to either to go and sit in therapy and, and, mm -hmm. and talk through that. But many of us don't have that, and many of us don't even think about going. And what you're saying is that that rejection can lead to harmful mm -hmm. events in people's mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, I know, you know, people. I'm on the fence. I don't. I don't really know what to think. You know, even if you take the situation with like uh, Stephen Stephens. Right. Um, right. Exactly. I think there is a temporary moment there is a moment where people snap some people can pull it back together but there is that moment of oh my god i can't do this i don't want to live life if i can't live without you because you can't see past the moment you can't see yourself um I, i've dealt with a hurtful a very hurtful breakup before and it was traumatizing i think i lost 20 pounds in one week i'm not even joking people thought i had hiv or something like i i had turned to the worst and and it felt it was so hurtful and 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 there is a moment like in my mind i knew i was going to move i could i could i was strong enough to get past it but it just never felt it didn't feel like the, the day would come and a friend said to me you know you know, Spooky, if I if I had known she had went through a horrible breakup before and she had told me and she was married at the time, she got married to the love of her life and she said, If I had known that this day would come, I wouldn't have spent so right. many years right. crying. Right. It's painful. And so I like to say with that that you know, I, and what we say we have a Facebook page called uh, it's a face face of darkness page for, you know, maybe about three or four thousand people and we put out posts every day, two or three times a day. And so what I like to say is that perspective is everything. Sometimes just a small perspective can change, can shift the thinking um, and, and, and help you reframe a little bit or give you some sort of hope um, in the process. And so, I, you know, there was a guy um, who reached out on Twitter to us uh, maybe a year, a year or two ago, 
And he said, I'm about to take my, I know I'm going to take my life. But I was, re- it was like 4 a.m. But I was researching depression and your, your, your wow. film came up. Wow. And he still promised us, no, I know I'm going to take your life. I'm not trying to get you to stop me. I just want to donate to your cause because before I go is what he said. Oh, wow. That was so heavy. And I said, okay, that's fine. But do you mind having a conversation with me before you take your life? And he was like, fine. I'm just don't, talk, don't attempt to talk me out of it. I know that I want. I know that this is my, my wife left me, and I know that this, this is over with. And, and as I talked to him and as, my, as KT, we would talk to him individually. <laughs> to this day, this guy and I are still friends. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's beautiful. That's the revolution right there. Say, that's the change. Oh, my God, you saved my life. Like, I was going to take my life, you know. And I don't think he could see the end. I don't think he could see the end. I don't think he could see that another woman would actually, that he would fall in love again and that there would be life after this. But sometimes it's just a shift in you know, shift in, exactly, exactly. And you're, you're, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing your documentary and, and promoting it. And because it's an opportunity for people to hear stories and hear the stories that we don't actually hear. I, I put it out on Facebook yesterday and my wonderful producer, Rachel Graham, put it out on Facebook yesterday. And we asked to see if somebody would come on the show to talk about their experiences. I got no response. It's, it's hard for me, and, and, and I should not have been amazed that I didn't get a response. I got a lot of likes from people, you know, and I actually said that to her. So I was like, you know what? Thank you for liking. Thank you for liking that. But I, I, I really want to find somebody. And, I, and I, the likes are the support, that we're supporting this conversation. But to talk about this is hard, to talk, to talk about this piece, because when you're in that hole, it's hard. But, but I think that if other people can hear those stories, and to hear how people got out of the hole, because that, and you know, as a developmental psychologist, we, we hear these stories. And I, I've had one of my students tell me, Dr. Corpru, when I go into that depressive space, it's like I'm falling into a hole and I can't get out. I can't, and I'm wow. climbing and I'm climbing and I'm trying, but that hole is closed and I can't get out. And it's debilitating. And if people can hear that there's a way to open that hole, that there's, there's a way out, that they know we can provide resilience. We, we can provide those mechanisms. And I think that your documentary is going to do it. Even the small pieces that I saw that you have on the web, that opportunity to hear and to know know that there are people out there. And, and my next guest is the wonderful Dr. Sherman, who's, who offers these means, these opportunities for people to come in and talk. And we've been talking about mental health for the last couple of weeks and, and, and really the importance of going to therapy. And that's the, that's the powerful too. So we, we need to continue to see that. And I applaud the work that you are doing, that you and KT are doing. Where are you all in the production process right now? We are still currently shooting uh, the feature. Um, we're still doing interviews. We're still locking in, like, people that can really make a difference, like, um, um, that, 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 you know, known people, well-known people, whether they're um, um, athletes and, um, you know, celebrities. So we're still kind of getting those types of people that can really make a change. If you see me, you'll see, you know, because people connect to those types of people, unfortunately, it has to take them. Um, but, uh, and so we're still filming, you know, we're still filming we don't have enough really to, to, to have the best story told, the story that we want told. So we, we keep filming, but we've done a lot of interviewing. We've, uh, Dr. Jeff, we've had him on doing a lot of interviewing of the men that are telling their stories and walking them. You know, he's, you know, he's really amazing at, you know, getting to the core of the issue. And so, um, and so, yeah, and then, you know, we're covering the whole gamut, like, you know, the different effects, the things that people don't think about, like nutrition, even. Um, so we're just heavily in the throes. We're still looking for uh, funding for posts. Um, so, so yeah, Squeaky, how, how, can people, how, can we, uh, how can people donate? How can people um, find you if they want to make, make it a, a donation to the, the project? How can they get in touch with you? Um, so they can they can contact me at Face of Darkness Documentary 2013 at gmail.com or 
faceofdarknessdocumentary.com. Either way, because I think we have a donate page on our uh, faceofdarknessdocumentary.com. Right. Or you can just email at faceofdarkness2013@gmail.com. Uh, Wonderful. Squeaky, I thank you for all of your time, and I, I, I applaud you for the efforts that you're making. This is your revolution, as you said, and we are supporting you and hope the best and cannot wait to spread the information about your documentary to the world. So I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. When we come back, my good friend, Dr. Denise Servington. I said I really dream of color, but and every brother ain't a brother, but pop melatonin like they sweet fish. To give her everything's my dying wish. Role play, she plays the mannequin. Raising my hand, teach us not again. The sun is up, but I feel down again. On just one hand, I can count all my friends. The understudy for the star, the show must go on. I'm a beast on a leash, I'm told from the lawn. Another notch in my belt, the food's getting scarce. Another notch in my belt, she shakes up the stairs. Drink liquid confidence to kill us, our defense. Get rid of the tense and makes life make sense. As I come off the fence and break through defense, anxiety is on the ropes and it's getting intense. Population getting tired now. Everybody wants to spy it now. Uh, racist emails fire out. We did it in the dark, it's coming out. Uh, the world is crazy and I cannot sleep, but melatonin good enough to eat, but I read the paper so that I can see what. I'd rather stay indoors and make a beat, but my mother said a lot of wise words to me. Her Bible was like her truly peasy headed and unruly. I made her think she got to me following the trailer. I want to thank Squeaky Moore for coming on the What's Your Revolution show today with me today. Please make sure that. Uh, you at least check out our page, Faces of Darkness Documentary 2013.com. Check it out. Uh, they're doing great work. As I said, I'm going to continue this conversation on mental health and well-being. We've got my great friend, Dr. Denise Sherbinton. Dr. Denise. Hi, Charles, my great friend, Charles. How are you today? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Wonderful. I appreciate you. You know, I'm 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 honored. You know, anytime I get to share this space with you, it is an honor to you know just learn to to pick your brain, to hear the knowledge, the wonderful knowledge that you bring to the table. Uh, it, it is an honor to have you on the show. And likewise for me, it's humbling to be invited. So thank you very much. Uh, wonderful. Uh, Doctor, uh, we have been talking about mental health and well-being the last couple of weeks. Um, I had my good, uh, our good friend Flint Mitchell on to talk about his experiences uh, in therapy. Last week we had on Dr. Brian Turner and Brandon Nelson to really talk about the impact of, of positive mental health and well-being. And today we've uh, just finished with Squeaky Moore and her documentary about the faces of darkness, really talking about men depression and suicide and so you're going to help us kind of culminate this with your your wonderful expertise the one thing that i want to talk with you about today is is to get more about to to move away from this deficit perspective of the conversation and move it to more of a resilience perspective how do we how do we as as a community have this conversation around prevention and positive mental health what do we have to do what are the steps that we need to take to foster this conversation in our community about positive mental health and well-being? Well, for me, positive mental health comes from being able to be willing to sit with the challenges that we face and being able to dig deep, build our muscles around how to work through the areas of pain and fear, anxiety, disappointment, loss in our lives and come out on the other side feeling, well, one with a feeling of acceptance, because this is a part of life. None of us can get away from these things. I know that for black men, there's some heightened societal issues, and we can talk about that. But it's really being able to manage well without being overwhelmed. The challenges that we face as individuals, just because we are human beings, and the challenges we face as a set of human beings who have had some extraordinary um, experiences with trauma and oppression in our, for several decades, not decades, I'm sorry, centuries. Several centuries, exactly. Right. 
Exactly. So what are some of those techniques that you offer, you know, as you, you, as you think about that, that you, you're taking race and gender and historical context and just the overall development, as you said, as, as human beings and taking that all into play. What are some of the techniques that can be used or some of the strategies that are out there to help people cope with some of the stressors that are involved with those things? Yeah, well, let me say that when I work with, as a clinical psychiatrist, when I work with um, any patient who, and I use the word patient, and for me it's a very adoring term. It has nothing to do with hierarchy, but that's how I've been trained. So I just want to clear that up. Right. Um, when I, there, it's always within the context of the recognition of, the intersection of race, class, and gender. So that I hold that space. But ultimately, for me, an individual has to learn how to negotiate within all of that. Mm -hmm. And I know there's some people who would say, well, if you just take those oppressive forces off of us, we'll be okay. That's a very important thing to happen. And, you know, the, the activists and advocates amongst us have to work to riddle, rid us of the levels of oppression that we face and microaggressions on a daily basis. That being said, because we've been so targeted and oppressed, there are pieces of us that have suffered and there's damage. And so that's when I work at the individual level, that's what I'm trying to understand. So not only do I have to just deal with, as I said, the kind of conflicts that would arise just from being alive as a human being, some existential issues that none of us can avoid. You know, like we have to deal with the anxiety that knowing that at some point this is going to end, we're going to die. How do we find meaning in our lives? So all of this, and then depending on the early circumstances of our ch childhood and the kinds of um, supports that we had in terms of our personality development. So I have to think about all of these factors when I'm working with a black person and in particular with a black male. Right, right, right. Um, Go ahead, and, Doc. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You're fine. You're, you're fine. So in these moments, in these spaces with you, and, and you're providing these strategies and you're working and you're trying to break down these, these levels, trying to get down to the, the meat, what are some of the experiences that people are, are talking about, and, uh, some specific things that, that are actually triggering them to, triggering their, their depression or their anxiety? And so we, we've talked about the experiences of racism but are there specific things that you've heard as a, as, as a clinician that really stand out that my listeners could hear as well that they might resonate with, specific experiences? Well, you know, I think a part of our legacy with all of this oppression, that at times we have had to try to dissociate from, escape the psychic pain. Mm. And so for some of us, we engage in certain addictive behaviors in our ability sometimes to avoid. So I can talk about some important work that I did um, in the early 90s with some African-American males who were addicted to crack. Mm, please. And, you know, what was really interesting... Um, as I think about that work, was what tended to happen when the men came to see me. And they were on their last leg, where they had been in prison, they had been kicked out of their families, they didn't have any jobs. And the VA at the time was offering them an opportunity, it was a research study, to see two African-American, and I would say pretty competent, psychotherapists. And so what I learned from this experience was how infrequently we invite ourselves to become, as a culture, more emotionally intelligent. For many of these um, men that I saw had no 
understanding about how to interrogate and understand what their emotions were telling them and what was the connection between their emotions, their resulting behaviors, and the way they think. And even though I did not use, you know, the typical, the more popular CBT, cognitive behavior. Right, cognitive behavior therapy, exactly. We used a more psychoanalytic, this actually is um, a process by Laborski, where we tried to tease out together, myself and the patient, what is this core conflictual mm. theme? What keeps coming up, and usually it's in the negative, that goes deep inside, that over time has really been a significant force in how your personality formed. That means how you experience the world, how you think about others and think about yourself in it. And then trying to, through looking at how they would relate to me, help them see how these patterns were showing up in their lives. Right, right. Doc, one of the things you just said that, that is critical, and I love that, that method, that technique, was the emotional intelligence about, uh, around healing and increasing that emotional intelligence because we're taking in so much. I did a, uh, an equity training today, one of, the, one of our wonderful nonprofits, uh, Community Works Today, and we talked about uh, the subconscious and the conscious and how our subconscious takes in so much, but we still behave based on all of that information that's, taking, that's taken in. But we have to be emotionally intelligent when we, and when I say that, we have to be able to recognize poor behavior or poor patterns of behavior. How do we increase our emotional intelligence? How, how, how do we do that so we can recognize that we're in these patterns that are not good for us and that we may be hurting not only ourselves, but the people that we come in contact with? A couple things. It's actually, we're going to have to get a little more quiet and introspective. A lot of us spend a lot of time just filling up our space with busyness, and we're not really being quiet and reflective and really thinking, you know, having that moment of, hmm. As the mayor, yes, a couple last week said something that was funny that he learned from this black woman about whenever he would say anything to her, she'd say, I'm going to process this. <laughs> and were you there? To, I think you were there. And you know, sometimes we need to allow ourselves and give ourselves permission to sit with things and not make ourselves so busy. And I think if we spend more quiet and contemplative time and not always have to watch television or be talking to someone um, or finding busy things to do being on social media, then we begin to be able to search what is it that I'm feeling? When I had this reaction today, what was, what was triggering this? What was the feeling? Was I upset? Was I afraid? Did I fear loss? You know, these are the, we, it has to start there. We have to have some desire for personal interest. Right. What, and, you're, what you're saying is that we need to spend, spend time in a meditative state finding time in our days that we're putting the phone down, that we're not on, the, on, our, on our MacBooks, that we're not in conversation, but finding time for peace. Is that what yes. you're saying? Find, finding time for peace. And interesting that you say that because I, I do a, a little bit of leadership coaching. And that was one thing that I said to uh, one of my clients yesterday is that she's going through this period of time where she's stressed, stressed, and she's going from the time she wakes up, she's working, to the time she goes to bed, she's working. A brilliant, 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 brilliant woman. I said, where's the break in your day? Yeah. And you're internalizing all of that. I said, what I want you to do, I said, even if you're dog tired, I want you to take a break from the time that you finish your work to the time that you get in bed, that you sit in that meditative state and that you just have peace and quiet and that you find that break because – when we're in that constant state of arousal, Doc, and you know this, our body is on and our mind is on, and the mind needs that time to heal. You know, and, and speaking of healing, Doc, I know that you had the uh, Healing the Healers retreat in Jamaica a couple weeks ago. How, how was that, and how would, you, how would you inform that 
to, to others to take that time, to take that respite time to heal? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, I wish we could all go to Jamaica, <laughs> water, the blue water. No doubt. Mountains. So, which really highlights to me a very important part of the healing is to find a way to be in nature and to appreciate the incredible beauty and awesomeness that's around. And it begins to invite you to see yourself as a part of something larger. Sometimes we're so caught up in our bodies, we don't see ourselves connected to anything else. So we need the trees, we need the birds, we need flowers. Beauty is a very, very important place of finding healing. You know, we, if, you, if you begin to pay attention to the beauty around you, you begin to see some of it in yourself. And mm. oftentimes, what I see in many of us, our sense of value and being deserving, we, we've, we've lost that. There are so many patients I see where if I can break it down to what is really driving this, is this feeling that I'm not deserving or I'm not good enough. And I know it sounds corny, but these are things to keep very, very, very tight spaces that we've held on to from children, from we've been children, and we're not even aware of how it's turning up in our lives. Right. Doc, what you're saying is that, are you saying that the men need to go out and take a walk in City Park? They need to listen to the birds. They need to see the beauty of the trees. Is that what, you, is that what you're telling my male listeners on this show? Is that that's what they need to do? Yeah, I tell you, I had, in the, the study that I, that I was involved with, with crack-addicted African-American men, they prevented me from going on my long-anticipated six weeks of vacation that <laughs> LSU because they came every week. They came to my office early because you know what? For many of them, they had never been listened to. Uh -huh. This was their first experience. I could never go on vacation. And even when I prepared, when I had to take vacation and I prepared the men, no matter what I did, I, one or two would have some kind of a break because they had become so attached to the good feelings they were getting from listening to themselves right. and hearing and mm. understanding themselves. And that, that, that's the thing, and it seems to be that thing. And I'm going I'm to I'm I'm come back because I love, I love being in the mountains. I love being in quiet. Uh, I love to go hiking. I love to go kayaking. I love to just be in it. You're right. It is peaceful to get out in nature and to do some of the things. And, and for us, for, for men, if you, if you think just being out in nature is not manly, find something that is, that, that is going to use your hands. You know, if you need to be in nature, find the F5, you know, for you to, to, to kayak down. But, Doc, like you said, even in the midst of that, I need that space to have somebody hear me. And that is a powerful thing, particularly as men are going through these tumultuous periods, as Squeaky just said very, you know, um, a few minutes ago, is that the power of someone to listen to your story. And the wonderful thing about women that I, that I love about women so much, Doc, is that the networks that you all build to support each other. If men had those same networks, if they had those same opportunities to get in space, you know, if it's the book club or whatever, if it's the fraternity meeting or, or whatever, to get in space and talk vulnerable, vulnerable uh, I think vulnerable, 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 yes, exactly. Thank you, Rachel. All Hold right. Up. We know what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. There, we, we may be able to offset some of the mental illness that our young brothers, our brothers, old, young, are struggling with. We think about my frat brother last week, Stephen Stevens, Steve Stevens, right? Man of Omega, in love with this woman. Something happened. Something snapped, right? He took it out. Eventually, he took his own life. But what if at some point in time, the bros had got together? And yes, I'm calling the bros out for a second, all right? What if the brothers had gotten together and let's surround our brother and give him what he needs. Let's hear him and not judge him. And too often I think that we as men think about who is going to judge us in this most vulnerable state. I'm telling you how I'm feeling, but is that, that crack coming, that, that, that joke or, man, I don't, I'm going to disassociate from you because you, you feel in a, a certain kind of way. 
I think one of the things that I think is really, really important and one thing that I have learned from being a therapist with black men over the years is that we've got to learn to be okay with, we have to teach our black boys that it's okay to be intimate with other black males. It's okay. We have put on an, an interpretation of this kind of emotional intimacy between men as we label it, and I think that it's, it's harmful. So you're right. So when the challenges come up and men can't face it, and depending on how severe it is, either they're going to internalize it and harm themselves or they're going to externalize it and harm other people. Exactly. They have no way to discharge the tension that they feel. Right, right. And, and, and like you said, that, that even that externalization can still be self-inflicted with suicide. Yeah, absolutely. Right. There's a very classic study that was done in the 80s um, by two black uh, mental health professionals, a psychiatrist and psychologist, and they found they interviewed, they did psychiatric assessments of black males who had committed homicide, and they found that within that 24-hour period before they did the act, they themselves were suicidal. Wow. Say that again. Say, say, say that again, Doc. Put that out there again. Yes, that they, but the study found that for black men who had committed homicide, when these two mental health um, profession, professionals who were black, when they did psychiatric assessments, mental health assessments of these men, within 24 hours of the homicide, they were experiencing um, suicidal feelings. And I did some work, I myself did some work with one of the famous that, um, I guess, snipers, and I won't say his name. Right. He was a young man, but the way he was taught to kill was in the bullseye when he was being taught how to be a target shooter, there was a picture of himself. Mm. Very, very depressed. Wow. Boy, his hair, he came from a lot of parental dysfunction. Right, wow. Yeah, and wow. he was depressed, and someone was able to manipulate that depression. And so in the murders he committed, he actually psychically was killing himself. Right, Doc, thank you, thank you. Um, you are listening to the What's a Revolution show. Uh, this is Dr. Corporal, and I am talking to the, the wisdom dropper. <laughs> the, the the eloquent the the intellectual guru Dr. Denise Servanton and she is just dropping wisdom with us about men, mental health, well-being, and, and and some of the strategies that we can actually use to be healthy. So Doc, let's go back for one second. You, you talked about men getting out in nature. What happens when if if men don't have those type of resources or they don't or won't make the time to go on a walk in the park? What do they, what do they do? What are some other opportunities for them to be to find some coping strategies when they are internalizing this type of stress that we just have been talking about? Well, I'm going to challenge that a little bit, and most of us, we can go and take a walk. Okay. So, you know, we, I would interrogate with that person, why can't you make the time? Mm, okay. Why can't you give yourself 30 minutes? Okay. There might be some real reasons why not. And in that case, I feel that one can have a space in one's house that is almost kind of sacred, that's quiet, and that you can kind of go to, you know, rather than being the man cave as just to go in and hang out with your buddies and drink and do sports, that maybe you can also use that as a space and get away and just be still and be more mindful, more present with yourself. Doc, you're saying that we, we need to redefine the man cave? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, I love that. I, I, I love that. Just in the sense that it, as we begin to redefine and find the healthiest versions of ourselves, we sometimes have to redefine how we have, you know, how we have defined some of the things that really make up being a man, the man cave. 
But what do we do in the man cave is what you're saying. Is, is how do we use that time uh, in a productive fashion to help us grow and find the healthiest versions of ourselves? Using that time for meditation, using that time for quiet, using that time for introspection, um, using that space... Uh, the man cave is not only for football and drinks, but also using it as an opportunity to gather your brothers, whoever they may be, to come and talk. I love that. I love that redefinition, that reshaping of the man cave, Doc. Mm -hmm. And you know, I also, I, I guess so much of my work with black men has happened in the context of the VA, which for me is a little bit ironic because I'm such a peace person. I'm not interested in the ways we, as a society, harm other people. But whatever, my great work, meaning that I had the, the honor of sitting with folks who were really committed to understanding themselves. And at my last stint at the VA, I did a group with African-American vets. Primarily, they had been in Vietnam. And what was incredible about these men, it was labeled an existential group where we were going to come and ponder givens of life, death, freedom, purpose, dealing with our isolation. And what the men discovered was that they had a powerful philosophical space that they didn't even know existed in themselves. And so they began to feel better about themselves, that they had very high and deep thoughts about life and the meaning of life but they had never given themselves permission nor had anyone facilitated the process for them. So, you know, I think it's important for us to really begin to think about then within the larger construct of just being a human being, what are some of these gender constructs that we have placed onto each other that have harmed us? And what I have seen for black men is this, very harmful cultural norm that getting to know self, being intimate, being vulnerable is a sign of weakness. It it's is not. the opposite. Right, right. It's control of yourself and right. knowing who you are. Right. Dr. Servington, I appreciate the knowledge. I, I appreciate the knowledge. I, I, everything that you have just given my listeners what are some of the resources that we have in New Orleans or some of the resources that we know nationwide that men can use to get the help that they need to? You know, the best resource is one of the best resources is to have some kind of health insurance so that if at any point men feel overwhelmed or on the other side, if they want to give themselves the gift of knowing themselves better, that they can access competent mental health professionals. So that's a very, very important thing. And, you know, with the shifts in health insurance coverage, I know sometimes that's difficult. But if that's not the case, I think that there is a public mental health system. I'm very happy that the executive director, an extremely competent African-American female psychiatrist. I've known her for many years. She's trying to improve the quality of services there. So there is, there is a fallback. And in the meantime, I, you know, I recommend practices. We also hold a lot of tension in our bodies. So practices where we use the breath that make us more aware of the connection between our bodies and our minds. I think there are a multitude of points for that, you know, it depends if you like. Doc? Yes, I hear that sound. No, no, keep going, just keep, wrap it up for me, Doc, you're just dropping wisdom, I don't want to cut you off. No, 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 this is fine, it's just really, once you make that commitment to our, of, that we come up with, City Park, I'm going to recommend, is one of the greatest spaces where when all else fails, you can go in, you can sit and look at the incredible beauty that's there. You can do walking meditations. You can just find peace. Right. Doc, we start. 
Doc, I appreciate everything, and we look forward to having you on the show soon again. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show. I am Dr. Corpru. Uh, I've had wonderful guests, Squeaky Moore and Dr. Denise Shervington. I want to always give a shout-out to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation for their wonderful and unwavering support of the What's Your Revolution show. Please tune in next Wednesday as we have C. Erskine Brown, author of A Cry Among Men. I look forward to that conversation. I look forward to seeing and hearing from you next week. And as always, every day, ask yourself, what's your revolution?